31, we learn a lot of things about Satan, a lot of things about this serpent. We learn that he's crafty, that he's cunning. This word in Hebrew is translated in Proverbs as shrewd or clever. And so we learn that Satan is very smart. He's very intelligent. He's very subtle. He gains our approval. He gains our trust to deceive us. But it's very subtle. He's so sly that Revelations 12.9 says that he actually deceived the whole world. And so this is one of the major characters of this story, is Satan. That he is a crafty deceiver. And so Act 2 is the deception. Act 2, Scene 1. There's going to be two scenes in this act, the deception. The first scene is the deception that Satan sows with a question. Look in the second half of verse 1 of chapter 3. Satan says to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now this is not really a question from Satan. What Satan's doing is he's promoting an atmosphere. An atmosphere of doubting the goodness of God's command. An atmosphere of doubting the logic of God, the fairness of God. He's saying, did God really ask you to not eat of any tree? One of the things that Satan does to promote this atmosphere of doubting God is twisting just barely with one word, the command of God. Very subtly, very crafty, very sneaky. He says, you may not eat of any tree. But God's command was that they could eat of every tree except for one. And so he starts to plant these seeds of doubt that God's law, God's commands, God's words are to bind you. They're to keep you down. They're to keep you from full life. And we see how this negative sort of deception that Satan gives starts to affect the woman's heart immediately. Look at her response with me in verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And so the woman communicates the command of God back to Satan in a way that seems to talk about the command as being overbearing or unfair or not right. And she does this by taking away, by subtracting from God's command, but also by adding to it. She subtracts from God's command by not emphasizing what God emphasizes, that they may eat of every tree of the garden, that God has provided abundance for them. She leaves that out. But she also adds to God's command that they can't even touch the tree. God never said that. And so you see that Satan casting doubt over the goodness of God's command starts to affect the woman immediately. That she herself starts to see God's command as overbearing, that is unfair. And Satan does this all with a question. There is a movement in the church today in which people are asking these questions like Satan asks. It's, it's okay to ask questions and saying, whatever the Lord says, I'll submit to it. But sometimes people ask questions for answers that have already been given. For example, in the church, people are asking questions like, does hell really exist? I mean, does it really? But the scripture is very clear that yes, it does. 
People are asking questions like, is homosexuality really wrong in God's eyes? God very clearly says, yes, it is. And so we see that these questions are so subtle, but they start leading people astray. They start deceiving people from God's word, from God's goodness, from God's commands. And it makes them question the reasonableness, the fairness of God's commands, because it doesn't quite fit with the current culture. And so what we see is that Satan starts to see him with these questions, and he continues to do this today. You know, we might look at Eve and say, man, she was so weak, she was so gullible. How did she fall for that trick? But every time we sin, every time we go against God's word, we fall for the same trick over and over and over again, not being convinced that God's word is good, that is true, that is trustworthy, that is fair. You know, there are areas in all of our lives where we say, I know what the Bible tells me, but God doesn't know how difficult it is for me to obey. God doesn't understand my situation. God doesn't understand how difficult this is. And so in our hearts, we say, that command is not fair. And we ignore it. We neglect it. And we don't repent over it, truly. And so you see this pattern repeated over and over and over again that we see right here in this first conversation about God is that we begin to doubt the goodness of His commands. And so Act 2, Scene 1, is the serpent deceives with the question. The second scene of this deception is that Satan starts deceiving with lies. Verse 4 and 5 are filled with half-truths. Filled with lies. Now, Satan is very crafty. Satan is very clever. He gains our trust. He gains our acceptance. And then he speaks half-truths into our lives. You know, very rarely will Satan say something that is just completely wrong, completely illogical, because that would be way too obvious. What he does is he throws into your mind half-truths. They gradually lead us astray from the Word of God. You'll see this here in verse 4. The servant said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so there are three uh, lies, three half-truths that I just want to walk through quickly here, where we see Satan leading Eve astray. The first one is that you will not surely die. Now this is true in part because when, when Eve and Adam ate of the apple, uh, excuse me, it may not have been an apple, ate of the fruit, it's always an apple in kids' books, isn't it? Okay. When they ate of the fruit, they didn't immediately die. They still lived. But something much more horrific happened. They died spiritually. They died in their relationship with God. And on that day, their physical death started as well as they started to decay and ultimately physically die. The second half-truth is that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, which is true in part. If you look at verse 7, if you just scan down a little bit, in Genesis 3, it says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And so it did open their eyes to some things that they didn't see before, but it didn't make life better. It made life worse. They were now led astray. They were now shamed by their sin. 
something that they had never seen before. And so it is true that their eyes were open, but it was worse than what they were hoping for. And the third lie, the third half-truth is God says, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Again, skim down to Genesis 3.22, if you would. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. And so it's true, at least in part. The problem here is that man had the opportunity to know good and evil before they ate of the fruit. They knew good because God had given them every good thing. And they knew evil because God said, stay away from that tree. Do not eat of that tree. And you will reap the harvest of wickedness if you do. And so they knew it cognitively. They knew it intellectually. But for the first time, they knew sin personally. They knew evil personally. They knew the ramifications, the devastation of sin. And so Satan keeps throwing out these half-truths to them. And all of them, in part, are true. But all of them are far worse than anything that they could possibly imagine. You know, as we walk through this life, all of us face different temptations. All of us have some temptations in some areas that are stronger than others. But in all of those, there are these half-promises of this will bring you joy, this will bring you satisfaction, this will bring you enjoyment, that there will be this instant gratification. And in part, all of that is true. But it's a bait around a hook. And we swallow the bait, and we swallow the hook, and it pulls us down further than we ever wanted to go, and it keeps us there longer than we ever wanted to stay. And so Satan continues to whisper these half-truths into our lives. You know, there was uh, one time I went down to New Orleans when I was in college, and we were on Bourbon Street, and there was a bunch of different people there running scams. And one of them was this guy who would stand there, and he would say, he'd call us, hey, I bet you $20 I can tell you where you got your shoes. I bet you $20 I can. I can tell you where you got your shoes. And so one sucker uh, walked up and said, okay, I'll make that bet. And the guy said, I'll tell you where you got your shoes. You got your shoes right there on the pavement. True? Partial. Not quite what the sucker was expecting. You see, Satan just sows all these half-truths to us. And when we bite the hook, when we bite the bait, it drags us into death. You know, with the illustration of the fireplace that we talked about before, if I'm just some random guy telling my kids, hey, don't get up on the fireplace, don't get up on the platform, they might obey out of fear, but if I'm their dad, and they know that I love them, and they know that my commands to them, my rules to them are an expression of my love, they will obey not only out of fear, but out of love. See, the lie that Satan breathes, the lies that Satan breathes, there is an underlying lie. And so under every half-truth, there's a lie that, God, that Satan is telling to us. The lie that underlies all these lies, the lie that underlies the questions that Satan puts in our hearts, is that God doesn't really love you. 
Think about it with this woman. He's saying, yeah, I know you want the fruit, but God won't let you have it. Isn't that kind of unfair? God must not really have the best in mind for you. God is keeping you back from living life to the fullest. God is keeping you back from enjoying something that you should have. God doesn't love you. He only loves himself. And he's protecting himself. That's what Satan's telling this woman. Not bluntly, but in part. So the lie that underlies all lies is that God doesn't really love you. This is what is the root of all of our sin. You think of both the religious person and the irreligious person. For the religious person, they graduated high school, and they went on to college, and they said, I'm going to read the Bible, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to do all these things for God, with no joy, with no excitement, with no love for God, and they do it to make God love them. They do it to try to force their way to heaven, to make God accept them because they're so good. But they do all these things because they don't believe God truly loves them. And so they do it to earn God's love, not as a result of God's love. You take the irreligious person. Again, thinking of a person maybe who graduates high school, who moves out of the house, who says, finally I'm free from all those silly rules at church, all those silly rules of my parents. Now I'm finally free to go and live life to the fullest. They never thought that God's laws were a communication of his love. They think that they are a prohibition. They are a guard. They are obstacles to true happiness, to true love. And so the root of all of our sin is the unbelief that God truly does love us. We search for love in other places, or we work hard that God might love us. And so Satan deceives with this question, and he also deceives with these lies, with these half-truths. The final act of this story is the fall in Genesis 3.6. Let me remind you before we read it that God tells them they may eat of any tree of the garden, except for this one, any tree. Genesis 3.6. So when the woman saw that the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be Desire to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And so the woman trades the multitude of trees, trades all of the fruit that God has given to her, and forsakes it for one piece of forbidden fruit. The saddest part of the story, or the most ironic part of the story for me, is that it's what's laid out in Genesis 2.9, that in the garden was also the tree of life. The tree which she could eat of and have eternal life with God forever. But she didn't want that fruit. She didn't want the fruit of the rest of the garden. She wanted that one piece of fruit because it looked much more enticing. Because it was forbidden. And so that's the fruit that she ate. That's the fruit that Adam ate. And again, we might look at them and say, man, you guys just really messed it up. And they did. We might look at them and say, you were so foolish. And they were. But every time we choose to go against God's will, we're saying, we don't care about the abundance of your love. We don't care about the abundance of the blessings that you provided for us. We want this forbidden fruit from this forbidden tree. That's what we want. That's where we'll find satisfaction. 
So it would be like if I took you to a car lot filled with Corvettes, and I said, you can have any Corvette you want on this whole lot, just not this one. Which one do you want? <laughs> the forbidden one, right? Or if I said, think of anything, any person in the whole wide world, just don't think about Aaron Rodgers. Who do you think about? Our hearts do this constantly, day in and day out. St. Augustine tells a story of when he was growing up, he and a gang of friends were out playing around and they went to their neighbor's yard and this neighbor had these pears. And these pears weren't as good as his pears, uh, nor were they as good looking as his pears. But he and his friends went and they stole the pears and they took bites of it, but then they threw it to the pigs because it was so awful. And he talks about this and he says that the reason why he did it was a contempt for well-doing and a strong impulse to inequity, that he desired to enjoy what he stole, but only the theft and the sin itself. He wanted it merely because it was forbidden, not because it was good or better than what he had. And so we see the story of the fall is the command from God, the deception of Satan, and finally, the fall of mankind who eats the forbidden fruit. In preparing this sermon, I was listening to a sermon by Tim Keller, and he points out this amazing fact. And I'll leave you with this. There was a second Adam named Jesus Christ. And this second Adam also was in a garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the garden, God gives the same command to Jesus as he gives to Adam and Eve. He says, obey me about the truth. Obey me about the truth. But here's the difference. To Adam and Eve, God says, obey me about the tree and you will live. But to his own son, Jesus, he says, obey me about the tree and you will die. And so he tells Adam and Eve, obey me about the tree and you will live. And they don't obey. But to Jesus, he says, obey me about the tree and you will die. And he obeys, dying for us, dying for our sin. <laughs> George Herbert writes a poem about Jesus hanging on the cross looking down and saying, O oh, all ye who pass by, behold and see, man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree. The tree of life for all, but only for me. And so what we see is that the cross is the tree of life for us because it was the tree of death for Jesus. Let's pray.